On episode 272 of the Tennis Files podcast, you learn about the most epic stories in tennis with Andrew Riley. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the show. This is your host, Mirban Iranshad, and today I'm excited to bring you a different type of episode from the norm. This one is more on the entertainment side, and I think you'll really enjoy it. It is about uh, very interesting tennis stories. And I came across Andrew Riley. Uh, he is friends with Will Hamilton from Fuzzy Yellow Balls, who's a good friend of mine and a practice partner uh, out here near me. He's in DC, I'm in Maryland. And at the City Open, uh, Andrew was uh, a guest of Will's uh, in, in Will's uh, suite, um, and I was there as well. And so I met Andrew and enjoyed chatting with him. And uh, he is uh, the founder of Cult Tennis YouTube channel, which is a really fantastic and very interesting channel because it brings out some uh, often uh, not well-known stories in the world of tennis, but uh, Andrew does such a great job at narrating and putting together some really great footage uh, that these videos have gotten millions of of views. I think the the one about blue clay got has gotten maybe like six million. I mean, I could be off, but it's it's many millions of people have watched that one. Um, but Andrew is also a former Division three college tennis player, and he majored in nutrition and dietetics, I believe, at uh, SUNY Onienta. Uh, hopefully I pronounced that right. But in any case, uh, I, we do have some really fun stories to talk about in the tennis world, including an incredible one that I just couldn't believe about a tennis player who faked his entire career. How about that one for a tennis story, huh? Uh, we also talk about um, Boris Becker and how he wasted his fortune um, through um, some very... Uh, Minus EV, if you will, moves. Um, that's expected value. I'm a poker player, so I, I like <laughs> using some of that terminology. And then um, we also talk about tennis balls and why they're not really good for the environment, actually. And some other cool um, stories. So I think you really enjoy this one. And you know, we'll take a slight break this week from uh, learning how to improve our game, you know, on the technical, tactical mental or fitness uh, side. And so, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a really entertaining one. Uh, and without further ado, here is my interview with Andrew Riley. Everybody, welcome to the Tennis Falls podcast. It's really a pleasure to have on Andrew Riley from Cult Tennis, uh, amazing ten uh, YouTube channel that you all should check out for sure. Uh, Andrew, uh, last time I saw you was at the City Open, and uh, it's really great to see you here again to uh, talk about some really cool tennis stories. So how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. You know, I'm really actually glad we connected because 
you know, in the field that I do, I really don't get to connect with that many people, you know, at events and whatnot, because I'm mainly, you know, working from home. I wish I was able to go out and, and film more, which, you know, which I would like to do for the future. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm glad to be here as well. <laughs> awesome, man. Yeah, no, it's it's a pleasure. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed hanging out with you at CD Open with our mutual friend, Will Hamilton from right. FYB. And yeah, I, I, you know, so I was going through your channel uh, the past couple of days and, you know, I've obviously seen videos before that, but just a lot of really interesting stories that I really think that people will get a kick out of, you know, A, us you know, discussing for a bit here. And then of course, you know, checking out uh, at the Cult Tennis YouTube channel. So we'll have a link to your channel, obviously in the show notes page. But um, one of the first ones that I thought was really <laughs> funny uh, was the tennis star who faked his entire career. So it's pretty amazing that, you know, you have this guy from, I think, was it North Macedonia? And he's basically able to captivate like, you know, the biggest names in the sport, like even though in fake, like he was a pro and he wasn't. So can you kind of go into that story? Because that was really amazing, uh, amazing feat. <laughs> yeah, um, to preface, it's it's kind of interesting because the topics that I find most interesting in tennis um, tend not to do the best in terms of uh, views and analytics and whatnot. Um, I think mm -hmm. that video may have crossed maybe the 60, 65,000 yeah, uh, view mark at this point, which is definitely lower for my channel. But it's some of those controversial, you know, doesn't necessarily have to do with the on court aspect of the sport itself. But it's some behind the scenes stuff that I personally find interesting. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people find interesting, but a lot of the regular viewers of my channel, not too interested in. But anyway, yeah, so the kid's name was Darko Grincharov, um from North Macedonia. And uh, to do the little cliff notes for anyone who has not uh, heard of this kid or watched the video. It's about this uh, teenager at the time who basically fooled a bunch of professional tennis players on social media of the likes of James Blake, Serena Williams, into believing that he himself was um, an up-and-coming uh, professional with real results and um, you know, a, a tremendous backstory in terms of the fact that he recovered from uh, a terrible stroke, could not walk for quite a while, and that he was on the, the war path, base, basically coming back to play big tournaments like Australian Open, Wimbledon. And it was even in interviewed by the BBC on their um, international broadcast about his, his story and his thoughts on some other tennis news. It's really remarkable, um, the social engineering tactics he used to get um, an audience on social media and views uh, on his videos and um, the amount of press he got. And eventually it was um, Ben Rothenberg, uh, the noted tennis journalist, who kind of exposed the whole sham and, and you know, brought him down in, in some sense. I mean, it wasn't necessarily huge news outside the, the tennis sphere, but uh, for someone who's interested in tennis, it was a kind of a, a, a big deal that someone, you know, of this very small uh, Eastern European country was able to manage such a, such a feat to get in touch with big name tennis players and have Serena Williams shout him out and say that she can't wait to meet him one day, meet her daughter, Olympia, and to be interviewed by these, um, you know, noted uh, news sources. So yeah, it was, it was a really fantastic story and a lot more, you know, that was the very shortened version, but a lot more that kind of went into it if anyone wants to check out the video. Yeah, super, super interesting. And that's kind of, you know, my channel, Cult Tennis. That's what I like to talk about. It's a lot of these stories that people don't really talk about. I'm not huge into talking about current events and, you know, daily, you know, news. Um, you know, stories and whatnot. And, you know, that, that's a huge market and people do love to hear about those things. But 
What I'm interested in is the kind of, uh, you know, off the beaten path stories in tennis that you rarely hear about. And I'm sure other people are too. And that's, I guess, what people come to my channel to, to hear and watch. Yeah, for sure, Andrew. And yeah, it was interesting. I did notice that like, you know, some of your other videos get like so many hundreds of thousands of views. And this one, you know, like you said, 60K or something like that. But it was one of my favorites just because, um, I don't know, the way the guy just like tricked everybody. And um, first of all, like, <laughs> when you showed the video of, of the guy playing, I immediately started laughing because like you can tell from his form, like you said, that he's like, I don't know, maybe like a three, five or something like that. Like it did not look very good. So did it help that he was from um, North Macedonia as opposed to like, it, you know, the USA? Because I really just wonder like, and maybe, I don't know, like why didn't people just like check out like his results? Like couldn't he be, uh, have been found out if anybody did any due diligence or is there more to the story for that? So the biggest thing was that because he was from North Macedonia, and this is kind of where my research led me um, into coming to this conclusion, North Macedonia doesn't have a huge sporting presence uh, around the world. You know, they have some, you know, big football players in the past. But in terms of tennis, it's very rare to have someone within the top 500. And a country like that, they are willing to take, you know, and this is not to say anything bad about the country or the sporting officials or whatever, but the news sources want to report on, on a big name tennis player coming out of the country because it's, it's major pride for the country and gives them, you know, decent international recognition. So I'm sure a bunch of the reporters and news outlets are give, able to give a little leeway in terms of who they're promoting and, and what's going on there. So he was able to, again, through social engineering, basically, he, you know, faked some results and sent in some official looking documents showing that he was who he said he was when he really wasn't. And the news reporters really looking for, uh, you know, an up and coming player out of their country. They they took the bait pretty easily without doing fact checking and going about that, you know, video of him playing, which is, you know, if you know, tennis uh, <laughs> uh, levels, he was maybe like a three, five uh, at best, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, low four oh, which uh, could not make most division three college tennis teams. Um but no, it, it was very bad. And the thing was, because, it was, you know, it was North Macedonia, when you kind of go take a step higher, a lot higher to, you know, news sources like the BBC, they don't have much to go on themselves. They kind of just, you know, see this foreign news site with not in English and not many pictures or videos. He did have an ITF record because he enrolled in and pulled out of an event, just one event, but that did create an ITF record for him. So it's a bunch of these confounding factors that kind of led up to him faking it because no one really knew who he was, but he was foreign and kind of got the support of other tennis players through these means as well. So it's kind of just everyone going in a circle, believing what they hear from other people and other news sources, and no one really going down to the source to, to figure out if it was actually true or not. So that's that's really the gist of it, you know, a, a, a country, you know, desperate for a tennis star, willing to report on anyone who claimed to be so. And with some words of encouragement from other professionals, he essentially became a professional in many people's eyes. Yeah, and uh, I think it was really funny how um, how Darko like he he said like through via Twitter that like he was um, that Adidas like took him on, and then yeah. like Adidas thanked him, but he wasn't actually on the team, right? Like he wasn't sponsored in any. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to actually remember uh, how that came about. I forget what Adidas's excuse was um, about the whole situation, but again, it's just so bold for someone to outright 
on Twitter <laughs> at a company saying thank you for the sponsorship with, you know, again, he was a ver- verified profile, you know, professional tennis player had a bunch of likes, comments, whether they were fake or not. You know, I guess a country could be, uh, sorry, a country, a, a brand could be forgiven for not doing their due diligence on this random player who some agent must have signed off on and must have been like, of course, this person is is our player. He says he is. I mean, he's verified, has all these fans. I mean, this person going to outright blatantly lie, which is, of course, what he was doing. So again, it's once you kind of get over the initial hurdle of getting a few people to believe you, it's so much easier to keep going forward. As long as you kind of hide your tracks semi-decently, you can really, you know, take some big leaps uh, upward in terms of uh, verifiability and getting people to believe you. And, you know, that that goes with um, everything, you know, the Tinder swindler, you know, on on Netflix and all of these documentaries where people are just so blatantly... Uh, I guess just so blatant in what they do. Um, it, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, and we, we, you know, we have seen um, other people in other sports doing it um, as well. It's just really amazing in tennis how, you know, it's not like a coach will sign you on, you'll sit on the bench and you're a player, you know, you have to uh, actually play the sport. And he was, has so many excuses as to why he was not playing tournaments. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, do you hear that on your end? Oh yeah. shit. I'm sorry. Okay. That's, that was my phone. Nope. <laughs> Oh, don't worry. I, I know why. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, hurricane about to hit me uh, here in Central Florida. Um, anyway, um, yes. So crazy story. Um, I'm very glad. I'm very glad I reported on it. Did a lot of research, despite the fact that it was not the most popular video. But you know, for people like you who enjoy the story, that's that's who it's made for. Yeah, yeah. And no, I appreciate your your work into that one, and obviously all the others. And one more, one more question on that is, um, do you know if any of these celebs like Serena and James Blake who I've had on, on the podcast and some, it's like, did any of them like, you know, put forth a, you know, a, a statement like after they found out or anything like that? Like, oops, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where it's so embarrassing to have been roped into that in, in many aspects. <laughs> it's just, again, because it, you know, it, it was not a hate, a high profile story outside the tennis sphere which, you know, compared to other industries is really not that big. You know, it's not making the front page of New York Times. Um, it was pushed under the rug. And I'm pretty sure James and Serena and, uh, you know, a few other noted uh, players uh, just chose to forgot about it. Or maybe even, you know, never yeah. even heard of it. I mean, I'm sure Serena sent that, you know, saw the story quickly on social media, DM'd uh, the player. And that was the last time she thought of him as well. So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm yeah. not to say uh, whether they had any regrets or or uh, not not that any retractions as far as, as far as I've seen. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, Riley. And um, one that that brought back some cool memories for me was uh, of your videos was the weird loophole that let anybody play the U.S. Open. Yeah, because um, I actually played. Well, I guess you can explain it, but yeah, I actually played in in this tournament like a couple of times, and it, I thought it was really cool. But um, yeah, kind of just go through that one, um, and you know what became of the tournament. Yeah, so for those listening who have never heard of this um, event um, or what we're we're talking about here, I I put out a video um, detailing the the story of the U.S. Open National Playoffs. And basically what that was, obviously the U.S. Open um, in New York City, one of the four Grand Slams. Now, it's called the U.S. Open, which should mean that anyone is allowed to play, uh, which really is not the case, of course. However, the U.S. Open National Playoffs was a a nationwide tournament in which um, the person who won the tournament um, essentially was able to qualify and uh, become a wild card into the qualifying draw of the U.S. Open. 
Now, of course, was not was not an easy feat. Only one player uh, received this wild card, but they were um, 12 or 13 sectional tournaments held around the country. The winners of each of those sectional tournaments, which, uh, again, anyone could sign up for. You did not have to have a ranking, any experience. You signed up, paid your fee. It was pretty expensive, like $150 a person. And if you, if you win your sectional tournament, those 12 to 16 players would be put in a, uh, you know, a, a knockout tournament at some uh, stadium around the country. And the winner of that second tournament was granted the wild card into the U.S. Open qualifying draw. And if you won the three matches of U.S. Open qualifying, which no wild card ever did in the six or so years that the event was held, um, would be granted a, a main draw spot. And they eventually expanded it to uh, mixed doubles and doubles. So it's actually a, a fairly big, uh, big event in, in many ways towards the end. Uh, but again, no, no one ever qualified for the main draw. However, I believe in can't remember if it was doubles or mixed doubles, you were automatically granted a, a main draw spot because there was no qualifying in one of those draws. However, right. of those winners, no one ever made it past the first round uh, of, of, of the main draw there. So very interesting concept. Um, I think many were not too happy about how it was run because I guess, well, we can get into that. You can ask me about that. But uh, <laughs> it, it was very interesting. And yeah, you said you played in it. I was actually signed up to play one year myself um, from Long Island. So I was... Uh, mm. I was signed up to play the one uh, at the U.S. Open in Flushing Meadows. They held the sec sectional tournament there. However, uh, I was sick that week, so I couldn't play. Oh. But my brother played, and uh, my older brother, and he actually played uh, a pretty good kid and was destroyed like 6-0, 6-0 in, in the first round. So it's really funny to see the level of, you know, you have some absolute beginners playing um, in these, because they, they, they put throw everyone together in the same draw. You have some beginners playing semi-professionals in many ways, so... The disparity is, is pretty hilarious, and it, it's it's pretty cool to see. Honestly, it's a it's a very rare uh, time that a competitive match goes on between a professional and a beginner. You know, uh, that counts for something. So it, it was it's it was a cool concept. Yeah, definitely. I remember playing the one in Middle States, and where I won like a first round match against like a decent like you know like a yeah, college player. I don't know if it was D3 or D1. And then, then I played a guy who was like, I think his highest rank was like 619 um, on the tour. But he, he was like maybe like five or six years out of that at least and lost that one. But um, really cool, you know, exciting concept. But, um, and actually one of my podcast guests, Sophie Chang, she was one of, I think the last one to win it, at least, you know, women's side. But, um, you know, unfortunately, that tournament no longer exists, um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on, you know, how you view it. But uh, kind of talk about, as you kind of alluded to, like the, the major issues with that tournament, because you would think that super cool concept, like you get somebody, you know, into qualifying for singles and main draw of doubles, like what's the big deal? It's just like one spot. So like, what, what why did they, um, you know, let go of this tournament or stop it? So... The official excuse that um, the U.S. Open tournament organizers gave, and again, it wasn't like a big, uh, you know, uh, cancellation announcement, a big finale, grand finale type thing. It was really just like a press statement. And like, that was it. It's basically, we're not doing it again next year. And their excuse was that they found, um, and this is honestly a, a, a criticism I would have as well. Mm -hmm. um, they found that professional players were using the national playoffs as a pathway into the U.S. Open bypassing normal means so basically you would have a player ranked like four or five hundred in the world someone who should have um you know gone through uh the normal means of of you know going 
into the qualifying draw uh, themselves or, or playing other type of pre-qualifying tournaments, getting up their ranking and playing the U.S. Open. Instead of doing that, they were entering the national playoffs, destroying all of their opponents up to <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe the final couple matches and then earning them a spot into the the qualifying draw. And I, I frankly don't blame them. You know, there were no rules at all in the national playoffs. You, you, there was no ranking cutoff. There was no skill gap cutoff. You know, truly, it, it was open to anyone, which makes sense considering the the purpose of the tournament. However, you know, through marketing and videos, it was billed as a tournament that like your average Joe was going to receive a wild card spot. And people were excited because like, wow, we get to see like my next door neighbor, you know, on TV playing uh, against Djokovic in the first round of the US <laughs> Open. And that was far from the case yeah. because, you know, by the time you made it to the, the national tournament at one location, the knockout stage, which would the winner of that would be, uh, um, you know, granted the wild card into the qualifying draw. Every single one of those players had professional rankings. If you made it, if you made it that far, you know, of course, there's still varying quality. Some of them would, you know, be top D1 uh, players. Others would actually be, you know, touring uh, players. Uh, but um, yeah, the, who it was built for and who actually succeeded, uh, complete disparity. So I believe there should have been um, some extra rules in place to prevent that. I believe they did include seating at some point and... Mm -hmm. I know they tweaked some rules at, at some point, but in the end, after the first couple of years that the USTA uh, saw that in attendance was declining and people no longer cared to cared about the tournament in the first place, like the first year it was televised, a mm. bunch of press release. They really advertised the heck out of this thing. And a lot of people cared about it. Even myself, I think I signed up the first year or two. And after that, it's like, I guess this thing is still going on. It's cool, I guess, but it's like the hype died down once especially the first two years the same guy won it twice which kind of mm -hmm. showed that okay it's really just a, another way for professionals to enter this event it's not really like your average joe is going to to play in the u.s open anytime soon so cool concept not executed super uh super well in my opinion um yeah. but it's a cool story you know you don't really see that um in other sports and you certainly don't see it in tennis uh that often for you know your, your everyday man to have the chance to qualify and again this is for men women you could do mixed doubles doubles eventually um so it was cool it, it, it was it was a really cool concept so i wonder if you know that the decline in participation was because like you said you know you'd see like basically professional players like win it year after year like what if they had just made the rules so that you know if you're Outside, if you're within the top 1,000, or if you have an ATP ranking and WTA ranking, then you can't play it. Like, do you think that if they did that, then then it would have done better, and and the participation would have gone up, or do you think it still would have gone down, and, and that's why USDA just said, "Oh, let's forget about it." Uh it's tough to say. It, it, it's really tough to say. I think I think personally, it would be. I personally think it would be really cool if it was amateur only, like you were not allowed yeah. to have any sort of previous ranking or anything like that. Um, but that was obviously not the case. Um, and professionals uh, exclusively did uh, play in it. The first year, actually, um, that it ran, the, the one of the finalists against Blake Strode, who ended up winning it two times, he had a career high ranking of like 80 something in the world, had played in all four Grand Slams previously. <laughs> Um, had made it to this, to, had made it to the finals of an ATP event at one point in his career. It, it was pretty crazy. I mean, the guy was, you know, in his early 40s or late 30s, I believe. Um, 
Wow. So obviously he was not a tour player anymore, but it really showed this is this is the kind of quality player that that we're seeing. So it was it was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the problem in the end. Like once you get to even like the national playoff, then you'll be destroyed. But most definitely, like if you get to the qualities of of U.S. Open, you'll be destroyed if you're if you don't uh, have yeah. a ranking. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool stuff. So. Another one of your videos that I thought was super interesting, and you know, I I had actually wondered like how this happened, and I had never looked into it. And thanks to your video, I learned you know the the synopsis, and it wasn't really, you know, um, your videos aren't like super long. I think they're they're like a perfect length. Um, yeah. But like how <laughs> Boris Becker wasted his one hundred seventy million dollar fortune. That's a heck of a lot of money, there, Andrew. So uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, what. And I was surprised to learn like the major chunk of it, what that was, which you obviously revealed in in the video. But like how I guess maybe go through kind of like is how he amassed the fortune. I mean, obviously some of it from tennis and then like what was his major downfall um, to, to lose it all? Yeah, so that was a very interesting video to make. Uh, I really enjoyed making it. Um and it again, it's one of those um, videos, you know, going off on a little tangent here about analytics. Um, I wasn't sure how the video would perform because, again, a lot of my viewers care more so about the on-court stuff and results and, you know, uh, match play statistics and stuff, stuff like that. You know, hmm. if it's going to be controversies, do controversies about the tournaments themselves and what happens on the court. The Boris Becker one was more, didn't really have much to do with on the court. I gave a brief bio about his tennis career, but it was mainly kind of off-court controversy. Um, but that video did do very well, um, which I'm glad about. I think it was a well-made video in the end. Yeah. But basically, of course, everyone knows Boris Becker, the 1980s and 90s, you know, German darling in many sense in terms of, you know, the great, you know, boom, boom, Boris <laughs> um, <laughs> player who who did very well. Um, so, yeah, won Wimbledon at 17 years old, uh, the youngest player still to this day, I believe, to have ever won uh, the singles championships for men. And yeah, amassed a great fortune. He was uh, had a lot of sponsorships, had the you know incredible support from his country and around the world. Was you know a very good-looking, successful guy. Um, again, he amassed a, a huge fortune because he was just a nonstop uh, champion. He he won a, a lot of tournaments throughout the late um, '80s and early '90s, and again uh, racked up a bunch of sponsorships. And it, it's. One thing that a lot of people don't understand or or grasp from his his personality because of the fact that he did waste so much money was that he was super, super dedicated to the sport. Um, not a lot, enough people give him credit for that. He was uh, very focused, uh, trained intensely. He wasn't like an Andre Agassi who was, you know, super talented and kind of just, you know, not very focused on his career. No, he was he was very focused, wanted to win, had the champion mentality. However, that champion's mentality and that greatness for the sport did not translate over into the business world after he retired. I think that's um, unfortunately something that's obviously not too uncommon with uh, athletes in general. You do you have great success in your sport, um, and then when you try to use that money to grow um, with risky investments after your career ends, that's where a lot of the problems come in. And the problem with Boris Becker is that he, I do not believe he had a... a any at all or a sound uh, financial you know, manager in any way. So Boris got involved in a bunch of uh, shady investment deals. He got involved in the dot-com bubble. He had a nutrition company. He owned uh, a car, car dealerships. He um, you know, played professional poker for many years. He um, 
I, I'm missing quite a few now. Yeah, no, he he really got anything that uh, was thrown give offered his way in terms of you know sizable capital investment um, uh, purposes. He he gave money into and pretty much lost uh, every investment. Of course, that's only part of the story. His personal problems were even worse. He um, you know has an ex-wife and then a separated wife and then an estranged girlfriend, I believe. So he has uh, the trifecta there. <laughs> he has illegitimate children. Um, a, you know, big scandal. Uh, post Wimbledon, uh, he had a baby. A woman was conceived in a broom closet. Uh, a woman was uh, sorry, not conceived. A baby was conceived afterwards. But yeah, he uh, he had a, he had uh, some affairs and uh, had to pay child support and uh, and money to uh, a couple women for for children. And it, yeah, bas- basically blew up in his face. So goes to show that uh, business prowess uh, does not equal tennis prowess in many ways yeah definitely and i mean how about the uh tech situation right that, yeah that, yeah good question um i forgot about that yeah so <laughs> th- the worst part of it all was that he claimed to be living in uh germany on his tax oh, sorry he claimed to be living in monaco on his tax returns which is of course a tax haven you pay no income tax in, the, in that country however he had an apartment in germany and uh actually spent most of the year in germany um and the properties got him to got him into a lot of trouble because obviously the authorities found that he did spend his time in Germany, which has a very high tax rate, and uh, yeah, ended up uh, going to jail um, not too long ago because of the effects of that. Um, after all these years, you know, so he got caught um, doing that and uh, didn't pay back what he was supposed to pay back, and then he was found to be found to be hiding assets um, in the bank accounts of his uh, ex wife. And he hid his uh, when you know when the authorities came to possess a lot of his um, his assets to pay off creditors. Uh, he was hiding his Grand Slam trophies uh, that were supposed to go to auction. And yeah, big uh, major scandal um, with Boris, unfortunately. And it, and it, it's too bad because when you see him on TV commentating, he does seem like a truly you know uh, class act guy. He's obviously very knowledgeable at the sport. He did coach. Uh, Djokovic, after all, through one of his best periods in professional tennis uh, that many people have ever seen. Um, so it, it is too bad about kind of what's happened to him. But, uh, you know, that's <laughs> that's what happens when you when you kind of throw your hands into a lot of places that they, they shouldn't be uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I guess they say something like don't extend your feet more than your blanket or something like that. And like, even though he made all that money, I, I guess he did. And I, I think you mentioned the video, too, that he was like too generous as well. Um, right. You know, so, um, yeah, that's that's a sad one. And so <laughs> so he's he's like actually in jail like right now. And he was watching Wimbledon from jail, basically. Yeah, that's what the that's what the I think uh, the people actually in jail, the people who run the jail actually did uh, put out a press release that Boris was granted uh, time to watch Wimbledon from his jail cell, which sounds very sad when you think about it because the jail itself was only located kilometers away from the actual uh, you know, grounds of, of Wimbledon. So to kind of have come from where he was just 30 years prior, uh, 25 years prior to where he is now, um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty sad decline. Um, I don't think this is the last we've seen of Boris, of course. It's, it, it's not a very long uh, jail sentence, just a, a year or two, and then he'll be out, and hopefully he'll 
uh, do right with his creditors and kind of, right. you know, ease up his financial situation. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of more aspects to that story, of course, including, you know, derelict properties. There were squatters. I don't, I don't think I'd include this in the video, but there were squatters living on his uh, Spain property who completely tore the place apart. They were using the solar panels on top of the house to heat the pool. Like they somehow <laughs> rigged it. It it was so bizarre if you see, saw pictures of that place. Um, but no, that that Boris really got himself into some you know hot water with a lot of the things he's done and the the properties he holds on to. So yeah, I mean, great player. You know, you can't uh, take away his accomplishments in life. Um, it's just kind of to see where he goes now because he still has uh, you know a legion of worldwide fans. Um, you know, to this day, of course, he's one of the biggest tennis players of all time. So. It's going to be interesting to see where he goes from here and and the decisions he decides to make once he leaves prison. For sure, yeah. I mean, um, you talk about like financial control and all that. I mean, kind of ironically too, because he played poker for a while. But I mean, you have some of like the most talented, best poker players in the world, and you know, I, I'm a big fan of of poker as well. But um, but you know, sometimes they just gamble way too much, or they go on tilt, and and then they lose it all. So I mean, that's kind of what a uh, what Boris did there. And uh, d he, does he have to pay, like, does he owe 50 million? Is that what he owes to, to his creditors? The or thing is, is I, I don't think it's set in stone because there are so many different outlets that give, you know, wildly varying figures mm. on, on how much, you know, you go as low as uh, 10 million to 100 million uh, owed, which sounds a little ludicrous to me. I, I, I seriously doubt it'd be that much. The problem mm. is there, he owes different banks uh, different amounts. And um, it's, again, the news sources kind of get it mixed up in terms of what he actually owes to what bank. And the amounts that the bank claims he owes, he outright denies or disputes mm -hmm. a lot of their figures, you know, in terms of interest and what was actually given to him versus not. So it's really unknown. Uh, I think there's only one uh, bank. You know, it's the one bank that, that got him sent to jail that he refused to pay back and which uh, brought about the bankruptcy case in the first place. So I don't think many people actually have a firm figure, but it's definitely not an insignificant amount. He, he's he's in hot water there, and hopefully, uh, he will uh, sell off the rest of his uh, trophies because uh, I don't think he can hold on to them much longer without being put in jail again. So we'll see what happens there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely a very very cool video there, and definitely check that one out. So one that I actually did not yet get to watch, but that I'm curious about. Um, and that makes me kind of sad, I guess, is why tennis balls are an, an environmental disaster. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what's, um, you know, without giving, I guess, the whole video away if you don't want to, but like, what what's the deal with that? Because we just crack them open and play and we're happy, but um, we don't really think about that part. So what's going on there? Yeah, so um, for those um, listening who don't, uh, no, the video. The the video is titled uh, "Why Yeah Why Tennis Balls Are an Environmental Disaster." Um, that video I I created and published um, uh, in in part with Team Seas, um, which is actually an or a foundation organization uh, founded by Mr. Beast. And, oh, awesome! Uh, yeah, yeah. They uh, they raised money last year. I think they were trying to raise thirty million dollars, and they hit the mark um, in terms of collecting trash out of the ocean. In terms of building these. Mm -hmm. uh, ocean robots to kind of sweep the oceans to pick up trash um a really noble effort and uh actually uh i met mr beast uh oh. in vid summit a youtube convention uh last cool. year um it was super super great to meet him you know very humble guy in person uh you know 
you never know with these big YouTubers or these big media personalities, how they're going to be in person. Super nice guy. Um, anyway, so yeah, I did that in collaboration with Mr. Beast, me and a bunch of other creators um, as well. So, you know, it came to me to create a video about environmentalism um, that also had to do with, with tennis. Now, you know, tennis, yeah, I don't think tennis and, and environmentalism have ever really been told in, in the same news story before. I don't think yeah. ma many people actually consider the environmental um, uh, component of the sport. Um, however, uh, you know, after doing some research, I did, I've kind of always thought about, you know, what does happen to tennis balls after we throw them away? Because, you know, a lot of people, especially when they play matches, you know, they'll crack open a can of balls, they'll use them and maybe they'll hit with them once or twice more and then they'll just throw them in the back of their car or just, or chuck them away. And, and considering how many tennis matches are played and how many people play tennis on a, on a regular basis, you can only imagine the amount of tennis balls that uh, end up in landfills. And now tennis balls are, are just a, a, a plastic coating on top of a rubber, both of which do not um, degrade really at all in landfills because the glue that holds uh, the two together is so strong and uh, not environmentally friendly um, that they just sit in landfills and they end up giving off methane uh, over many, many years because of what they're composed of, basically. Uh, so it kind of sucks. So <laughs> I made a video uh, talking about that and basically what people could potentially do about it. Now, some of the solutions, which are not great solutions, uh, I'll, I'll tell you that right now. I think uh, tennis is a long way to go in, in terms of becoming a more environmentally friendly support and sustainable in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, so with tennis balls, number one, Wilson uh, created this ball called the Trinity Ball. Now, this it's a, I don't remember if it's a pressureless ball or if it's like a low pressure ball, but it lasts significantly longer um, than a normal tennis ball does. They're not sold in plastic. They're sold in these like paper cartons, which shows that they do not need to be pressurized. Um, yeah. And um, they're really good for that. So they last a lot longer. You can go... Uh, significantly longer like i said without to, having to open a new can of tennis balls and there you go i mean i guess that's one solution in in many ways not great um another is a company called recycle balls um and basically if you've ever been on a tennis court where there's this like ball recycling station i know i've seen it at some of the clubs i've played at they will take your balls uh the tennis balls that you you know chuck in their bins and they'll repurpose it into other applications such as they developed this like kind of synthetic court material that you can use at you know gyms and schools and whatnot, and it's basically created from the rubber and plastic of a tennis ball. It's very interesting. Uh, they've developed some clothes, like shirts and shoes and whatnot. One of the coolest things I think they've done with the tennis balls is there's in horse stables. You know, the, the ground is very soft and it's almost like this like straw and, and and whatever soft ground that they use in horse stables. They will grind up the tennis balls and, and lay it across the ground. Um, in these horse stables uh, to create horse footing stuff. I don't know. I'm not the company. I don't really know how they do it. But uh, <laughs> if you see pictures online, it, it looks really cool. So again, not even close to being perfect. I, I, I seriously doubt they even get a very insignificant portion of the overall tennis ball waste in this country or the world, I should say. Um, but there are organize, organizations doing stuff about it. And there's one more organization. I kind of forget about the the name of it. Um, but they actually recycled the tennis ball um, themselves into other um, applications uh, in terms of uh, get, taking out the plastic, taking out the rubber, and doing other stuff with it. So, like I said, nothing is is great in terms of the current climate of tennis ball recycling and reuse and um, process of creating the tennis ball itself. 
I do hope that manufacturers step up to the plate. I think it's honestly up to the USTA, ATP, WTA, other tennis federations around the world to say something about it. Um, I hope you know some European country or US or Canada is the first to put their foot down on it because I think a lot of other organizations are doing a lot better jobs in terms of making what they do environmentally friendly and especially in terms of you know in environmental awareness these days um but we'll see uh i'm very big into environmentalism so that's why i created the video and i'd like to see that one day um what i hate personally is you know when, whenever you hit a tennis ball the little fuzz is always flying off of it and especially mm-hmm. if you're playing on a clay court you'll see it kind of you know lining the ground at the clay court a little bit and you don't think much about it because if you're outside it kind of just washes away or you sweep it away um but that's plastic uh, and that stays where it is in, indefinitely and that that's not going to break down anytime soon within your lifetime um and that's in the air if it's windy you know it can blow into the waterways uh fish will um you know eat uh the little plastic that comes off the tennis ball again if we're talking about the grand scheme of the world <laughs> so insignificant compared to the other types of pollution we have uh littering our waterways um and that was the purpose of the video team sees um but I'm a tennis YouTuber, so you know that's what I want to talk about. And I just think it's something that people should just uh, keep in mind, I should say. I don't think it's, even me, I don't see myself, if I have the opportunity to recycle my tennis balls, absolutely. If I have the opportunity to purchase the Trinity balls that Wilson has to uh, lengthen the longevity of, of my tennis Longevity-y, ball usage, yeah. yes, I'll do it. But <laughs> there's no easy yeah. solution uh, without really taking the extra step to to do it so hopefully it'll be easier in the future i guess is what i'm saying yeah no super interesting there and um yeah i see the trinity balls uh, you know I'm, I'm on my computer as well looking and some sites actually limit like the amount you can get do you have any idea if the trinity balls which like you said last like way longer than normal yeah. balls like do they have like a, a pretty similar feel so that like you know advanced player like yourself and myself wouldn't really wouldn't really matter too much you know i've never played with them actually i think i've seen them in stores yeah. but i've yet to buy them I, I i do want to try it one day however when they introduced them they did use them at a professional event it was a wta event oh. i don't remember if it was a tour event or if it was like a, um you know a, a lower league uh, of women's mm-hmm. tennis it's kind futures of embarrassing or something or no it's yeah challenger it, it, future, it's yeah. futures and challengers this equivalent for wta is is that a thing oh is it oh no now you got me I, no they definitely have challengers i think they have both yeah no, that's, that's embarrassing for us but okay whatever okay. <laughs> whatever is below the lowest Uh-oh. wta event, I, think that, I think that was it <laughs> uh, yes they did use them at a, at a, at a professional <laughs> event however uh a lot of the comments in my videos when i um in that particular video, when I mentioned the Trinity balls, there are some, you know, really varied uh, opinions and criticism about the balls themselves. Some people say it's great. It's a great um, substitution. Other people say they play like crap. Um, Mm. So I'm very interested to try them out myself and see, I mean, they've been out for a while. I'm sure a lot of the people listening here have probably uh, played with them um, once, maybe without even knowing. Um, it's an alternative, you know, I, I, we're not going to be seeing them used at the U S open anytime soon. You know, players will not go for anything that's less than a, an actual tennis ball feel, but, uh, a step in the right direction, uh, I should say. So hopefully we'll see our, our, our sport kind of heading that way in, in the next few years. Yeah, that would be good. That would be very good. Yeah. I've seen a mix of like really good reviews and then like, man, not the same, but, um, Definitely at least like maybe for like serves and stuff. Uh, I would definitely try that. Um, good, good stuff. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So, <laughs> so this is like a pretty controversial like topic and like I pretty much have to fight myself, you know, all the time, like, because I'm, you know, I love tennis, obviously. And then we have, you know, another sport called pickleball that, yeah. you know, sometimes you see them take the courts from us or, you know, uh, yeah, just like replace tennis courts with pickleball courts was I get from an economic perspective and whatnot. But so, you know, we were talking before we started recording and you mentioned some some uh, videos coming up so that we can all look forward to watching. So um what if you could just, um, you know, maybe talk a little bit about your thoughts um, on pickleball? Yeah, so um, pickleball is a big thing. You know, a, a lot of my uh, former college teammates, a lot of people I grew up playing tennis with, uh, a lot of people I've worked with um, in tennis have now switched to almost exclusively no. playing pickleball. It's a big no. thing, you know? Damn. Um, and I'll be the first to say I'm not a big fan of seeing my courts that I've played on previously transformed into pickleball courts. I'm now, it's you. one thing if you put if you just put down the lines and they're, and it's the rollaway nets, you know, you could just move back and forth. That's, that's whatever, you know? I think pickleball is a good way to get people exercising and, and playing a racket sport that they would have yeah. done nothing otherwise, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, when I see um, space that was initially reserved for tennis now being used to fit pickleball courts in with permanent nets and permanent lines and, and all of that, I don't know. What what do you think, for, first of all? Let me ask you. Yeah, it definitely uh, makes me maybe not, yeah, pretty close to angry, I guess. Yeah, it, it's just really <laughs> a shame. Like, Because then I just think like, you know, that show American Greed, I just think of the guy <laughs> saying it. Cause it's just like, you know, it's all like economics. It's like, okay, yeah, I know you can replace this one court with like four, was it three or four pickleball courts, something like that yeah. and like make more money. But, um, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the other part of me is like, <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, tennis is definitely like a, a tougher sport in terms of like, you know, techniques and, and, you know, it's bigger court and it's basically like, it's like when I see the younger, and I don't know if this may sound bad, like, you know, especially like younger tennis players switch to pickleball, like the, the ego part of me is like, what, you can't handle <laughs> tennis, yeah. but you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's different, but, um, yeah, I just, especially when I hear like pickleball players, like, you know, trying to troll or make fun of tennis and saying like, Oh, <laughs> tennis is going down. I'm like, man, you just, you can't handle tennis. Can you? So, so I, I constantly have to patrol myself because there's obviously a lot of good people like playing pickleball. And like, I agree with you, you know, the, the seniors, especially like, I totally get it. You know, you switch to something easier, but, um, 
yeah, it just uh, definitely very perturbed to see uh, tennis, uh, you know, courts taken over. It's it's not a it's not a good good thing for me to see. I, I hate it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, roasting aside, I, I do understand the value of the sport and why it's become so popular. You know, truly anyone of any age can can pick up um, a pickleball paddle, would you call it? Uh, it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, paddle, right? Yeah. Um, and, and start getting a rally going. You know, I think people who've played tennis a lot of their lives or even people who've been playing for many, many years, uh, they kind of forget or uh, don't appreciate the, the amount of time that was initially put into their training to get them to the point that they can they that they can consistently rally. And I know firsthand a number of people I've known who kind of just quit tennis after uh, a few weeks or months because they weren't seeing much progress. And tennis is one of those sports where I mean it's it's so great when you can finally start hitting the ball and getting rally goings and really develop your strokes because it becomes a, truly a lifelong sport after that. Yeah. Um and that's why I love tennis so much. However, pickleball you can kind of just uh, pick up the paddle and start playing immediately um, mm -hmm. in, in many aspects. You know, some people are just generally unathletic in terms of uh, growing up. So it does take them a little uh, while longer to get it going. But, you know, you get a, you get a, some doubles going. And especially if it's uh, like an event, kind of like a, a drinks and pickleball type thing. It's, it's just fun and, and casual, which I truly mm -hmm. uh, do understand uh, the purpose. And I think I read recently that pickleball, you know, now surpassed, far surpassed, becoming um, something of a hundred million dollar uh, industry. Um, if, I'm not sure if that was the U.S. or the world, but it is it is a massive sport now that you know, you know, your mom and dad have have heard of, you know, and um, and are a lot of times are playing. And it, if they want to take up tennis and and find that it's too hard, just take up pickleball is is a lot of people's yeah. mindset now. So it's interesting, yeah. So yeah, as we were saying before. Uh, our call started uh, here today. I'm going to be making a video on that and kind of going through the history of the sport, how mm. it became so popular. I'd really love to research um, people who invented the sport and kind of what their uh, purpose was and basically how it's affecting the, uh, what I'm most interested in is how is it affecting the sport of tennis today? And where do we see ourselves uh, a few years down the line in terms of will pickleball truly become almost mainstream like tennis is? You know, tennis is such a history and legacy throughout the world i don't think it's pickleball would come close to matching that in terms of uh the i'm not sure the word i'm looking for but you know the impact the tennis has on the world i don't think it'll ever be uh, a sport like that but like ping pong you know everyone plays ping pong everyone loves table tennis i think pickleball could really be like that where it's like yeah let's go play some pickleball you know i i maybe i have like a little court in my in you know my community or my apartment complex, we have pickleball courts. Let's just go take them and play because it's so easy. It's so pick up and go, you know, uh, it's like yeah. having a volleyball court, uh, you know, wherever you live, it's pick up and go. You don't really need to train to play. You just pick yeah. up and start playing for half an hour, an hour, you get some good exercise and, and that's it. So I don't see pickleball becoming like this big, like, Oh, grand slams. Like, you know, the whole world is watching. You have royalty <laughs> going to the, the tournaments, but it really is going to become a really casual, fun, very popular sport I, I see becoming uh for better or worse um i think it's really just the tennis people who are are annoyed about this i don't think the world actually cares <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, probably. That, that this is going on i think just tennis players hate that it's kind of encroaching on existing yeah. tennis facilities and it's taking pros away and, and budget away from um improving tennis facilities and going towards pickleball because again it, it's it's easy money it's easy revenue there's very little upkeep um and you don't really need very experienced people uh, teaching like um before i did youtube i was i was teaching tennis for 
um, many years, and I taught in Florida, northern Florida, and we had a, a, a some pickleball courts back there. And because I was the new guy there, I was just the designated pickleball pro, <laughs> even though I didn't play. I did. <laughs> and that's the thing. Pickleball is really just kind of half volleys and volleys. You know, that, that that's really yeah. it. As long as you're kind of holding a continental grip on, on the paddle, it's really just kind of teaching people how to, you know, hold it like this, forward, backwards, and you got some serving and, and that's really it. And the people who take pickleball lessons are absolute beginners in tennis and pickleball. They have no idea what they're doing. So it's yeah. it's like magic when you teach them, just got to push it over. It's, wow, this is great. <laughs> Again, I'm, not, I'm not trying to roast uh, people who yeah, play yeah. pickleball or take up pickleball. It's If you're not going to do, be doing anything else, if you're not playing tennis otherwise, yeah, great. Pick up a, a, a paddle sport. I'm, I'm all for it. Um, but if... If you're taking up it up because it's easier than tennis and you find yourself uh, getting into it easier than tennis, I think that's a little bit of a shame. You're, you're uh, denying yourself the privilege of, of really putting yourself into a lifelong sport that I think is, is fundamentally better in pickleball in every way. I mean, that's coming from someone who just loves tennis, you know. But uh, yeah, so I think that's a great video topic anyway, getting back to what we were saying. Uh, I think a lot of people would love to watch that. Um, and yeah. It's 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 gonna be fun. I mean, that's that's basically what I like to make YouTube videos about. It's really just, do I like it? Do I think other people might be interested in it? You know, I, of course, I I look at analytics and I see trends and I see what people may want to watch, and I do um, enjoy getting comments of people's video topics and ideas and um, suggestions. Um, but in the end, it comes down to if I'm not having fun making the video, then I'm not going to make the video. And I don't mean to sound snobbish, um, but um, you know, it's, it's, if I'm sitting at a computer for 80 hours working on this video, I, I hope I'm going to like it. Cause otherwise it's going to be a miserable 80 hours. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, that's my mindset there. Good stuff. Yeah. I think we pretty much perfectly align with, with, you know, pickleball and tennis. And I guess, um, real quick before I ask you, I mean, more broadly about just YouTube in general and, yeah. and what you've been doing is like, what do you think about, <laughs> Uh, pickleball. So I just saw an ad for Topcord while I was actually watching um, Cult Tennis YouTube, on YouTube, and it was actually um, it was for a pickleball lesson on Topcord. And then you know you've seen like a pickleball like on tennis channel as well. So do you have any thoughts on that? Because definitely a lot of people were were also perturbed to use that word again. Because um, I, I think during the City Open, for example, I remember people were wondering like where is the the women's like where the women's matches and they were they were but they were showing like pickleball i don't know you know obviously the contracts for tv i don't know how that worked but uh, what do you think about about the inclusion of tennis on like predominantly like tennis channels like shouldn't they have their own pickleball channel or something <laughs> wait so going back to your first um comment on top court they're teaching pickleball now yeah, I that's the, I saw an ad with like two huh. pickleball instructors and they're like oh we're your instructors and it was top court now, I really wonder what, who the audience for that is, honestly, like online instruction for pickleball, because I, I truly see pickleball as very much a pickup, you know, tennis, you're really looking for the fundamentals, you know, you probably already play tennis, but you want to learn from the pros exactly how they're, you know, hitting the top spin on their forehand, exactly mm -hmm. how they're getting that extra kick on their second serve, you know, how are they hitting that, that drop volley, you know, we're, we're more so looking for the fundamentals and match strategy. For pickleball, I mean, first of all, we're looking at a much smaller segment in terms of who's actually at the level that they need that special training from professionals. Mm -hmm. um, that's very interesting to me. I, I did not know that, although I'll have to, I'll have to look into that myself. Um, going back to your second comment, though, yeah, that's um, – I, I equate the tennis channel um, showing pickleball over a 
uh, a major tournament final to MTV playing reality shows over scheduled music programming, you know? Mm. Um, it's 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 jarring and very bizarre to see. And again, I truly wonder who they think the market segment is. I don't see Pickleball as yet as this rabid fan base that is, uh, you know, go, clamoring to network TV to watch uh, a, a tournament. I see that it's great for being like online streams and YouTube and Facebook. I see it all over there for the tournaments. Um, but for for Tennis Channel to be showing um, Pickleball over over major events, I guess it does show how the market is shifting in terms of what type of programming they think they, they think their their viewers are going to want to see. Um, it's crazy. I, 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 I think it's crazy. Um, I think it's a bad move on their part. Again, if it was dead programming um, or dead air, sure. Um, but to kind of prioritizing pickleball over many ways. And yeah, I have seen online on like Reddit and whatnot, you know, mm-hmm. Tennis Channel just getting roasted in terms of their programming decisions. And I'm curious, uh, you know, what their... Uh, production um manager of some sorts is is thinking in that decision um yeah i don't know what 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 do you think yeah i don't know i mean i obviously have to be a little careful because um you know uh tennis channel like i'm on my podcast on their their network but i still you know obviously this is like you know constructive criticism um yeah i think uh pickleball should just probably you know have their own sort of thing i I mean yeah i i think that you know tennis channel it's called tennis they should maximize like tennis on it so i really don't know and i you know just you know obviously some connections i have there maybe i can ask them like the thought process but um yeah i wouldn't say i'm the biggest fan but again if there's some other reasoning like you know there's always sometimes some reasoning that you haven't thought of maybe maybe it's there (laughs) i don't know but um, yeah i i I do see tennis channel uh, if we're going to be specifically talking about the tennis channel, and obviously I don't know anyone there uh, personally, so I, I, I'm not. I'm just saying this pure conjecture. I do see them transitioning into more of like just like a racket enthusiast type of of mm. platform, um, where maybe they would even show a like paddle, you know, down the line in terms of the type right. of programming they're offering. If, if that's the, what they're going for, I could see that happening because I do see the market shifting there. You know, alternative racket sports are becoming huge. Um, all over the world, you know, you can play, again, a, a racket-type sport on the cheap during the winter um, in, a, in a lot of sports, a paddle. And um, one sport I see on YouTube, which I think is awesome, is called touch tennis. I'm not sure if you've mm. heard of it or seen of it, but it's basically, like, it's basically regular tennis, but just with um, softer balls on a mini tennis court. You know, you're actually you're play, playing with mini rackets, and they're actually serving, serving and volleying and rallying. And I think yeah. that's the coolest sport personally because it's actually fast-paced fun. Pickleball doesn't really resemble tennis in many ways aside from kind of the volley aspect. Um, yeah, it, it's really going to be interesting to see over the next 10, 15 years. And uh, you bring up a good point that I should actually touch on. You know, are, are these alternative racket sports going to become more formidable in terms of actual competition to the sport? You know, especially for the USTA to kind of contend with. Is the USTA going to implement uh, an alternative racket sport into their repertoire of things that they actually promote um, uh, through the country? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think tennis will ever be kind of knocked off the as the top dog of, of of racket sports. I mean, I don't see how that would be possible. I don't even think it would make sense because tennis is in a completely different ball game in terms of the skill needed. Um, 
it's going to be interesting to see. I think pickleball is, yeah. is interesting. I don't love it, but uh, I think it's a very interesting sport. Yeah, definitely. I'm wondering, like, are there, you know, how, like, obviously we start a lot of us at a young age, like training all the time. Like, are they actually doing that? Like, are there like eight, nine year olds, like in these like elite pickleball camps? Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would love to see that. I, there's, I have no doubt that's going to be uh, something that, that, that will be marketed, you know, especially in the future. But obviously I don't think there's any top pickleball player out there, you know, people that consider themselves professionals and, you know, are, are professionals in any way. I don't think there's one out there who, you know, took up pickleball, to, who took up pickleball as like their sport. It's, uh, it's obviously all ex-tennis players yeah, who transition totally. to pickleball because for their lifestyle, it, it makes sense. Um, it's going to be interesting if over the next 10, 15, 20 years um, in the U.S. or even around the world, if pickleball takes up more over there, if we have people taking a traditional route of of beginning with pickleball you know are we going to see pickleball academies yeah are we going to see like pickleball taught at schools oh, actually i think they do teach pickleball at schools and gym and whatnot um yeah i don't know man uh maybe we need to open that up andrew partner up <laughs> <laughs> go against our uh inner inner th- words and <laughs> you know cult pickleball i don't, I don't know why I, think oh, tennis, cult I don't know why i think tennis is where it's at cult pickleball is where the real viewers are going to come from yeah yeah <laughs> made a big mistake Andrew. no i'm kidding um yeah good stuff man um you know i launched into like all these videos because i'm you know just so excited to discuss the stories with you and perhaps i should have gone in reverse but um you know i guess you know and i know you have to go pretty soon so kind of just i'm curious to know like the beginning of like why you decided to create the channel, like what what the catalyst was, and then kind of maybe like your vision for the future and moving forward. Yeah, sure. So uh, I don't, I haven't talked about this much uh, because I don't I don't normally do a ton of podcasts. Um, but so basically, um, how I got interested in in YouTube and uh, what I do now. That's basically what you're asking, right? Yeah. 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 Um, very quick. Uh, just so I've been a tennis player all my life. Um, not not a fantastic player, not a bad player, a good player. Um, I played uh, Division three college um, throughout school. Um, I graduated uh, actually with a degree in nutrition and dietetics. So that's kind of where I thought I'd be heading. Um, actually, initially, uh, uh, my first major was engineering or sorry, computer science. It was not good at that. Switched to electrical or sorry, microelectronic engineering. That was not a good fit for me. And then I went to nutrition and dietetics. I don't know after all these years, you know, I've actually started thinking about it more this year. I'm 27 now. Why for so long I thought math and science was going to be it for me because I'm clearly <laughs> not good at it at all, truly. I, I'm, I'm very terrible at math and science. So, and I'm very good at like English and, and writing and and uh, research and, and all that. Um, Was your know family why. in that? Your family maybe? or uh, Well, they... my dad's my dad's a physician. So okay. Um, okay. not that I was inspired to take up uh, the health and science field because of that. Um, I just thought, you know, it makes good money generally engineering, health, science, you know, yeah. medicine, um, I'll pursue something in that. And I'll just, if I'm not good at it, I'll just work hard and I'll become good at it. Well, I, I never became good at it after all those years of trying, I just realized it's not for me. So anyway, I graduated the degree in nutrition dietetics, um, with dietetics, basically what you're supposed to do, you graduate in order to become a practicing dietitian, at least now, uh, you have to get your master's degree. Um, mm. I don't think it has to be in the field of nutrition or dietetics, but you have to get a master's degree. 
and you need to do a um, six to 12 months of an unpaid internship uh, at a mm. hospital or facility. I graduated with my degree and I just said, I'm not doing that. Um, I already <laughs> am not because dietitians don't make a lot of money. They make maybe uh, 40 to $45,000 starting out. And then after five, 10 years, you're maybe getting to the $50,000, $60,000 mark. Um, you know, depends on what organization you work for, private or public. Um, that was not for me. Um, I just didn't even like it enough to, to want to do that. So uh, I taught tennis um, at a, uh, it's basically a, a tennis uh, management company um, here in the US um, for a few years. Uh, I traveled all over the world, or sorry, all over the country doing it, and it was great. I uh, worked in Texas, Maryland, um, Florida um, for, for a while. So I, I kind of jumping back and forth uh, from a bunch of facilities. I got to go to a lot of great events because of it. Um, and then in early 2020, this is actually right before um, the pandemic hit. Um, I liked what I was doing. However, I just did not see it as a lifelong thing for me. I did not think that I was you know, the, an all-time great coach that it's like, this has to be my passion because I'm so good at it and everyone loves what I do. Um, I, I did think I was a good pro, you know, um, but it's not like I was going to make a big impact in this world if I stay as a pro. I just didn't have the skills to become that like, you know, great pro everyone talks about. So if I'm not doing something that I think I'm very good at and providing a great service to, to my community in, it's like, why am I doing this? I'm kind of just not wasting my, my youth away, but I want to do something that I'm truly passionate about. And I think that I could be the best at what I do in some regards. Um, so I don't know. One day I just had this idea. I had never, ever considered YouTube prior. But one night I was just like, why don't I do this like YouTube thing? You know, it, it sounds pretty cool. Um, and I went on. And I think one of my big issues is that no one previously did good tennis related content similar to what I do now. Now, YouTube is primarily instruction. You know, um, a lot of yeah. people just with their channels and, and cameras teaching how to do uh, forehands, backhands, serves, match instruction, match play footage, a lot of highlight channels, obviously, for, for professional tennis as well. Um, I was interested in none of that. Um, that's just not what I find interesting. I don't watch those type of videos. What I love are documentary channels, video essays, um, channels that I'm interested in the subject and I can learn a little bit about the subject's history in a short time, you know, eight to 10 minutes. Like, wow, that was a cool video. I want to learn more about this topic and I'll subscribe to this channel. And there's nothing quality related uh, when it came to tennis. Mm -hmm. Now, I thought I could do it better than anyone else was. There wasn't a lot of people doing it, but I thought I could do it better. However, I had never edited a video before. I had never done uh, a research script for tennis. I never I was, I'm not a tennis journalist. I've never written anything on tennis prior. I just had all these ideas in my head, Mick man, this would be a cool video. You know, it'd be a cool video if I talked about that one year in 2012 that the Madrid Open used blue clay instead of red. Like I always thought about that as a kid. Like that's that did so pretty cool. well. That yeah, did. exactly. That video <laughs> did very well. Um, but no one ever made a video about that. And, but it's like such an interesting topic and so many tennis fans around the world, you know? You know, Adidas one year came out with this bizarre racket that no one used that they marketed heavily and, and it was a complete failure. And I remember seeing people playing with it when I was a kid. Why does no one talk about that? That'd be such a cool topic. Adidas, this major brand, like absolutely failing at a, at a major tennis product. Like no one's ever talked about that. No one talks. I mean, people have talked about Federer's deal with like Uniqlo, but like no one talks about how does Hawkeye work? You know, how 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 is it right? You know, a lot of these questions internally I had. It's like I was probably going to go on Wikipedia and look up how it worked anyway. But if I'm doing it, why not actually make a script about it, right? Why not 
um, make a video about it. So, I mean, that really goes for anyone aspiring to do YouTube. You don't have to start out knowing everything. You don't have to start off knowing anything. Um, I downloaded iMovie. I bought this like crappy, uh, it's actually over there still. It's like this blue Yeti microphone. It's actually not too bad. It, it, it's a decent microphone. Um, but I started off with my, my 2015 MacBook back in, in 2020, iMovie and a, and, a, and a microphone for, I bought for 80 bucks off Amazon. And that's it. Uh, when I wasn't teaching at nights, I, my first video was about Donald Young. He's my, mm -hmm. one of my favorite players. Controversial in the fact that he doesn't win, but uh, <laughs> I thought he had, a, he had a good story. So I, I made videos on, again, what I was interested in. My first video about Donald Young. Whose first video is going to be about Donald Young? My second video was about um, Marcus Willis, who uh, went through pre-qualifying at Wimbledon and somehow qualified for the entire tournament, beating like Andre Rublev and Medvedev and qualifying. Crazy story before they were big players. So it was really uh, half for my own benefit. Like I thought this is these random topics were cool. Maybe someone would want to watch it. Again, start off with iMovie. I start off with very, very terrible edits. Um, it's it's one of those things where you look back at your earliest content. I'm pretty sure you're the same thing with with the podcast. Yeah. You look back at the earliest videos like, oh, guy, sounds so amateur <laughs> exactly, and terrible. And yeah. I can't even like listen or watch this anymore. That's how I feel about the early videos. But um, so I did that. And then I did that for about a month or two. And then COVID hit. And then I was uh, furloughed from, from work for about two, three months. And um, I had nothing to do. So I thought it'd be a really cool um, decision to work on YouTube like it was my full-time job because I was doing nothing else. I wasn't getting paid. I had maybe 100 subscribers uh, for six months or so. And I just worked on videos nonstop, like literally setting a schedule for myself eight hours a day. Like, uh, I'm going to start work at this time, end at this time, and, and that's it. And I did that for uh, many, many months on end. My videos were getting maybe 100, 200 views. The blue mm. clay video, which now has almost 8 million views for yep. the first nine months had about 350 views, 400 views. If I was getting wow. like five views a day, I was like, man, this is awesome. People are like, <laughs> people are interested in what I'm saying about this topic. And, you know, obviously when, when the videos, when I first make the videos, it's my best work to that date. So I was like, this is such like good quality editing. I'm really getting better. And I was getting better. Um, you know, I was taking a lot of inspiration from other video essay creators. I was taking notes on what they did right. I was looking at analytics. I was figuring out, you know, where people were tuning tuning out of my videos. I was, you know, making the intros more concise. I was improving the the motion graphics work. I was figuring out how to do a little bit of 3D editing. I was improving the script so it was more concise. And I was actually getting to the point earlier. And um, again, I was making videos for no one. It was really just, I, I sh it was myself. I showed my girlfriend. She said it was great. Good job, Andrew. <laughs> I got back to work teaching tennis and that was that. And then about seven to eight months after I started my channel, it was actually my birthday, which is September 18th, only a couple of weeks ago now. Oh, um, of Thank you. Uh, in 2020, that I was at a bar with my friends and I saw the blue clay video. <laughs> was like taking off. Now taking off for me, at that point, I was lucky to get 100 views a day, 150 views a day. Like I was like, maybe I'll get, if I got like three to five subs a day, I was like, this will add up to like a couple hundred one day or a thousand. Like, if I hit a thousand subs, I'll be monetized. I'll actually make money for what I'll doing. Maybe I'll quit my job in five years and try to focus on this with 10,000 subs. The video took off getting maybe 50 to 100,000 views an hour. <laughs> I, was, I was, you know. Wow. Do you know how or like why? Or um, 
Well, this algorithm. The, that actually was the second video that took off technically. For some reason, the Marcus Willis video, the the pre qualifier at Wimbledon, was getting like a, it was starting to get like one to two thousand views uh, every hour for a couple of days. And I was like, oh my god, what's happening? And then it kind of died down. So I was like, that was a cool spike back to reality. And then I guess a, a bunch of those people watched the blue clay video that YouTube found it that everyone was clicking on the thumbnail. I saw like the thumbnail stats. It was crazy. Like, you know, 25% of people were clicking on the video that saw the impression. And oh my God, the, the blue clay video took off where uh, within three to four days, the video had, you know, two, three million views. Um, I had thousands of subscribers overnight. Um, I, I instantly became monetized and the video was um, bringing in maybe seven to eight, seven to $800 a day. Nice. Um, and instantly it clicked. I was like, wow, there's potential here. Why, uh, why am I working a job <laughs> where I make less than that when yeah. I could, if I get one of these hits every three to four months, it's paying my bills and more. And I actually like what I'm doing. Um, so I quit my job, uh, not too long after that, maybe two months, two months later, uh, I quit my job. Um, and I started doing YouTube full time. Now I'm not going to say it's been like a awesome you know trajectory upwards consistently for the last two or so years um and that's it mainly has to do with me it hasn't doesn't have to do with, does not have to do with youtube youtube's been great to me and i've consistently gotten paid and the work i put in is the 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 exposure and the impressions the money i get out of it which is fantastic um it's a tough transition uh, going full-time to working by yourself you know um mm -hmm. there's a lot more responsibility on yourself i'm personally at least not yet the best business minded. So when it comes to hiring, when it comes to mm. uh, marketing, when it comes to social yeah. media, um, I, I have to say still to this day, and um, it's to the disappointment. A lot of people watch my videos. I'm just, I'm not great at, at that extra stuff. And which is why I know I need to get, I have the money to do so. So I really need to get hiring and have people help me with some of the stuff I don't like. So I can start to focus on the things that I am good at, which is creating YouTube videos. Um, I think my creativity and the way I script my videos and the ways I edit are the things I'm actually good at. So I need to focus on that and focus less on the other stuff that I could hire someone to help me do. And hopefully over time, my ultimate goal is to really not hand off Colt Tennis in any way, but I'd really like to have a, a team working with me to create the videos so that it, you know, 100% of the stuff, thumbnail creation, research, script writing, editing, creating the motion graphics, um, the titles, the SEO, Everything doesn't have to rely on me on a, on a 10 day basis, rolling basis, you know, and I'd like to create other types of YouTube content that is not just video essays. You know, I have all this great camera gear that I bought to um, start a second channel that I have not uh, even picked up because I'm so, I'm not sure if stressed is the right word, but just, um, and burnt out is not the right word either. Um, but I, I'm too much in my head in terms of what I think the next great business move is that I'm that I'm starting to lose focus on what made the channel the greatest in the first place. So we're starting to see these these big gaps in my videos uh, in terms of publishing dates um, where I am working on them, but I'm trying to work at, on so many things at once mm -hmm. that it's like the, the the main thing I'm supposed to work on is, is really starting to get pushed back. Um, and man, I really went off on a tangent here <laughs> in terms of how oh, I started great. doing what I'm doing. Um, but that's kind of the, the life cycle of a YouTuber. You know, what my, my situation is not unique in any ways. I'm sure a lot of people um, deal with the pressures and the, and the uh, challenges uh, of being a full-time content creator like myself. But what I, I do want to express, I'm not showing any uh, 
disdain or I'm not trying to harp on the negatives of what I do. I love what I do. I think I have the best job in the world. And what I do is not hard. You know, a lot of, a lot of content creators will say, oh my gosh, my job is so hard. I, I have to be up at this time. I have to talk with the brands. I have to do the marketing. Like, come on. It's, it's, it is challenging, but it's not hard. Uh, so I love what I do. And hopefully I'll get some of the little quirks and, 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 and tough spots ironed out where I'm running a more, you know, uh, running a business more like clockwork. Yeah. yeah streamline. That's the word I was looking for as opposed to kind of this stuttering, uh, you know, intermittent, uh, intermittent, uh, video upload schedule that I've been doing. Um, so that's what I'm working on, um, right now to kind of summarize everything from the start to now, uh, where I'm at. I love making YouTube videos. I love what I do. I love publishing a video and seeing the awesome comments from people who enjoy my channel and saying that, you know, there's nothing else like what you do, or, you know, I'm not a fan of tennis in general, but I love your videos. Can't stop watching them. It's like, you know, anything like that. It doesn't matter how many subscribers or how many views or how much money you've made doing what you do. It's every time you see that, it's like, wow, I'm really making a difference in someone's life. Whereas before when I was teaching tennis, I, I was making a difference in the, in the lives of people I taught as well. I had some great clients, some uh, people who really loved me and loved coming to lessons and paying me a decent amount of money to teach them. However, I was only I was spending one hour improving one person's life. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I, I, I create a video and I'm um, hopefully I'm, I'm bringing pleasure to millions of people's days. Um, and I, and I think my impact, my skill set is better suited for that line of work than what I was doing before. So that's why I do what I do and that's why I enjoy it so much. And hopefully I can make a bigger impact down the line. And, you know, I'm not in it for money. If I can make, you know, uh, enough money to pay my, my rent and, uh, pay the bills, that's great. Otherwise I just want to get money to, buy more equipment to make better videos, which is what I've been doing. So that's where I'm at. That's where the future is hopefully heading. And I just want to create better videos uh, for as long as I can see in the foreseeable future. So we'll see. Awesome, man. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, think of how how well you're doing now if you could just outsource a few things and, um, you know, create the processes to to make that happen. So yeah, awesome, awesome stuff. And yeah, Andrew, I know <laughs> you mentioned a certain timeline, which you've uh, gone over, so I apologize. But um, yeah, it's been great having you on, Andrew. Uh, definitely really want people to check out Cult Tennis on YouTube. Um, we'll have the link in the show notes page. And um, yeah, I guess uh, any any last thoughts before we uh, close this one out, Andrew? Uh, no, uh, thanks so much for having me on. You know, again, I don't do podcasts very often, mainly because... Uh, I like having absolute control of what I say and how it goes out. I'm a stuttering mess when I'm talking off script, as you can see. I kind of just go off on tangents <laughs> and whatnot. I like my videos because I create. I spend all the time I want creating a script, and then I just read off the script, and there's no uh, superfluous uh, words coming out of my mouth that shouldn't be. But no, this is great because you know, obviously, uh, we're friends, and I like you, so that's why it was it was, it was great to do this. Uh, no, you know, I hope uh, anyone who found what I said was interesting today. You know, uh, yeah, absolutely, check out my. Uh, my YouTube channel, Colt Tennis. I love to talk about uh, the sport, the history of the sport, the players, tournaments, controversies, um, because uh, you know a lot of times what I find interesting is what other people find interesting. As we said, hopefully um, soon I have a, a a video coming out on on pickleball. I'd love to talk about pickleball's impact on tennis. Um, what else did I say? Didn't I? I, I told you before. Oh, uh, yeah, I have a video coming out on world team tennis. That's right. Uh, That's right. Again, it, it sounds so random when I just bring it up like that, but I'll be talking about 
you know, world teams tennis uh, place in today's day and age where it's really people mainly care about the ATP WTA. Why is this third party league still a thing attracting top players to play in them? What are they paying them? You know, how are they mm. getting attendance? I, I think it's a very interesting story in there because world team tennis is very old. You know, it says it's as old as the open era of tennis goes back. Um, and um, I won't I, I guess I won't say what the topic is, but I do have a video coming out in about two days or so. Again, I'm from Central Florida, so we have a hurricane, major hurricane coming as of this recording. So if my power doesn't go out, if the internet does not go out, we'll see the video in a couple of days. Otherwise, just like all the rest of my videos that seem to come out when they come out, it'll come out eventually. So yeah, thanks again for having me on. Love talking to you and uh, we'll have to do it again someday. Yes, uh, stay safe over there in Florida. And um, yeah, just really looking forward to your content. And and yeah, I mean, the you know, your editing has really evolved, uh, by the way, you know, I mean, like the, the way the manner of the edits and also the frequency, I think keeps people like super engaged. And it's part of why um, you're doing so so well, Andrew. So thanks again for coming on and I uh, hope to talk soon. And again, uh, be safe and uh, yeah, take care. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Andrew from Cult Tennis. I definitely highly encourage you all to check out Cult Tennis's YouTube channel. Just type in Cult Tennis on YouTube.com or click the link in the show notes page, uh, as well as visit Cult Tennis's Instagram page. And if you enjoyed this episode and if you really got um, some good value or entertainment, obviously, for this one uh, from it, then I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts with an S at the end, or click the review button on your favorite podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. I just find that Apple Podcasts is the one that moves the needle the most in terms of getting the show higher up the rankings and uh, it's the most used one. Um, so yeah, it's, it would really help if you left a review and, uh, you know, to let me know how you think the show is doing. Really appreciate that very much. And I also would like to leave you with a quote as I often do at the end of every show. And this one is by, uh, we have anonymous today. And the quote is, you're busy doubting yourself while others are intimidated by your full potential. People seem to really like that one um, when I posted it on Instagram. So yeah, uh, I hope that you enjoyed um, this episode and that you've been improving your game and uh, just being the best you can and improving every day. So with that, thanks so much for listening and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is Mirabhan Aranshad signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.